0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Mind Your Body. Before I get into today's episode, I want to tell you all about how you can win a free elastoblast. If you're unfamiliar with the elastoblast, it's a stretchy, springy, soft sensory material that brings movement, creativity, and unity to therapy sessions, fitness classes, classrooms, and other settings. I've personally used it many times in my own sessions, and it has sometimes been a lifesaver for me when nothing else would work. Most recently, I've used it often with children to play a modified tug of war to help them safely explore competition and channel aggression. If you're interested in winning this for free, visit www.MindYourBodyDMT.com and click on Leave a Review to learn more about the Elastoblast and how to win it. Today's episode features Rena Kornblum, a dance movement therapist who specializes in violence and bullying prevention. Rena has an award winning approach to using movement and therapy in therapy and prevention work. This is a longer episode, but totally worth sticking around till the end. Rena shares so many stories from her work with children who have been bullied, who have bullied, and those who have witnessed bullying. She shares amazingly creative solutions to even the most difficult cases including ones involving her own children. Towards the end, Rena ties it all back to how we as adults can be living more respectfully and peacefully amongst each other. It's super valuable and really interesting stuff. So I hope you enjoy the many years of wisdom shared through this episode. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence.
1: My name is Rena Kornblum. I've been living in Madison, Wisconsin for the last 35 years, maybe. (laughs) And um, I work at Hancock Center for Dance Movement Therapy. And as part of my work there, I started a program in the schools. A neighborhood school was having trouble. They had a lot of children that had experienced trauma. And the principal was writing editorial letters to the newspaper every day, basically saying, we have these children, they can't learn. Every place has waiting lists of six months to a year. This is a crime. These kids need treatment now. So it happened to be my neighborhood school. And I went to the principal and said, We don't have a waiting list, and this is a population we specialize in. We could see these children right now. And she asked me to give an in-service to the teachers about what dance movement therapy was, which I did. And they asked me if I would be willing to do an in-school therapy program because many of these families, was they were too chaotic to be able to get them to a program after school. So I agreed, and that's how I started my work in the schools, was going to this one school one morning a week with a colleague, doing three sessions in a row, meeting with the school psychologist and social worker, and going back to Hancock Center. The school felt like it was very important. They saw wonderful things happen for the children. We came one morning, and that was the morning we had to see the kids, and they let those kids get taken out of anything to have the therapy. Two years after I started the in-school therapy program, a gym teacher came to me and said, Rena, I have this class of kids and there's so many angry kids in this class. I don't know what to do with them. And she was a very experienced teacher. So I figured if she couldn't get the kids to do anything, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to either. But I said, sure. So I went into this class. So these first graders, I walk in to do this class. And in this school, there were two gym teachers. Both of them were there. They had student teachers. There were seven adults that came to watch me (laughs) work with this class the first time that's intimidating <laughs> he's just, he's a little bit intimidating right these kids come in and this first grader walks in the room strutting literally like strutting like you would see on tv from old shows he goes what are we going to do in here this is going to be stupid i'm not going to do anything <laughs> So okay but he's one of the angry ones <laughs> i acted like i didn't hear it because i figured if i engaged him in this we'd be in conflict And I started um, a movement activity. I don't remember what it was because it was over 20 years ago. But after we moved for a few minutes, I could see this kid was a mover, this one kid. And um, when we sat down, I was going to take out the stretch cloth, the spandex cloth circular. And he said, what are we going to do now? This is going to be boring. And at that point, I knew he was a mover. And I said, look, um, we're going to do something fun right now but I'm not going to tolerate you treating me in this way. So you have a choice. You either talk to me respectfully or go sit out. And that was the last rude thing he said. <laughs> After a week or two of working with this class, I realized that there was a whole core of kids that had anger issues. So i worked on how to ignore distraction. And we did an activity. I was in a gym because it was a gym, the gym class time. And I had half the class stand kind of close to the wall, facing the wall. And they were supposed to hop backwards, staying in a straight line. So they had like a movement task that they had to concentrate in. The other half of the class was facing them and they were going to walk down the floor as they hopped down the floor, trying to make them laugh. So we did this and then I stopped and I asked the kids, well, what did they do? What worked? I wasn't concerned of whether they laughed or not. When they weren't laughing, what worked? What helped them? Almost every single kid talked about adding tension to their body to ignore the distraction. They, they clenched their jaw. They put their lips together. They gritted their hands. They So in one class, we were doing that ignoring activity, um, similar to what I said I'd done with that first class, and that class had several special ed kids in it, and some of the kids hit the kids who were supposed to be ignoring them. So we stopped right away, sat down on the floor, and we talked about how do you know when it's okay to ignore and when it's not, when is it safe and when isn't it safe just to, to ignore? So when I went home, I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about the body skills that one needed to have to stay safe. So for a year, maybe two years, I did this as an abuse prevention curriculum. And the teachers loved it. But as I worked with this, I started to realize that there are lots of kids that didn't know even have a connection to abuse, thank goodness. But everyone could relate to bullying. Everyone could relate to teasing. Everyone could relate to somebody getting picked on. So I kept the same body skills, but I changed the focus to bullying instead of abuse. At the same time, I had done a training in Madison on my curriculum, and Lynn Koshlin, a dance therapist in Utah, had taken that training and had developed her own curriculum to work in utah so she told me one of her challenges was getting the teachers to understand what the goals were that she was working on and i said to her i think you need to develop some pictorial handouts you know it makes it more concrete for them when i got off the phone i said yeah rena you should develop some pictorial <laughs> handouts <laughs> so i did and i started to write the curriculum into a book
0: You mentioned that the body had an evident role in a lot of your experiences leading up to creating your curriculum. Could you tell us more specifically why it's essential to incorporate the body and movement into a violence and bullying prevention program? Um,
1: I feel like the body is essential when you're talking about abuse prevention or bullying prevention because when somebody's doing the abuse or the bullying They're using their body in an unsafe way. And if you're getting victimized by bullying or abuse, your body is being invaded. Whether they touch you or call you names, it still feels like your body has been invaded. Just like if somebody breaks into your car, you feel invaded even though they haven't touched your body. Also, the children who witness the bullying or abuse are also traumatized and feel in their body, the sense of helplessness. And they also have effects from this because they don't know what to do, how to have an impact on this. So I adapted my curriculum with the idea that I was going to work with all three of those populations, both the abuser or bully, the children who are being targeted and witnesses. And so I added into the curriculum anger management, Also handling all kinds of strong emotions and how to do that safely. I added, well, I already had empathy in there. I feel like empathy is a key component to stopping abuse or bullying, because if you can feel the pain you're going to cause another person, you're less likely to do it. And empathy begins on a body level. We know that that starts in infancy when the caretaker responds to the child by matching them by matching the intensity of them when they're upset, by rocking them, by holding them. And then when they begin to understand words, reflecting back their feelings. Empathy begins on a body level, feeling connected with on a body level. So that was one really key point because everybody talks about empathy. They talk to the kids about responding, but not a lot is done on a body level. Another key thing that my curriculum offered that no other prevention curriculum I've seen, and I've I've looked at lots of them, talk about is spatial awareness. Bullying or abuse involves an intrusion into your space, whether it's your physical space or your emotional space. So understanding what kind of space do I feel comfortable with? Um, When do I feel like my space is being invaded? And that can be different by who the person is that's coming towards you. It can be different culturally. It can be different size-wise or sex-wise. We looked at spatial awareness from several different components. So one was having kids walk up to you and saying stop when you felt like they were as close as you wanted them to be and doing it with several different people. And then starting to have other kids and myself recognize that there were kids that no matter who it was, they didn't say stop until somebody was right up in their face. And for sometimes that was cultural. And sometimes it was because they had experienced trauma, they didn't recognize the right to have a space where they felt comfortable. So across all cultures, there's like a distance to, to talk to somebody face to face. And that's from about three quarters of an arm's length to about two, two and a half arm length. After, if you get bigger than that, you're more in social space. You're not having a, a one-to-one conversation. And if you get closer to that, you're in somebody's intimate space. And then different cultures have different preference of three-quarters of an arm might feel really intrusive to some people. And two and a half arms might feel like they're so far away from you, you don't care about me anymore. Mm-hmm. So we would I wanted everybody to recognize one and a half arms away from them, what that would be like what that distance was. So we would practice just recognizing that. And then we started experimenting. How do you accept somebody whose spatial needs are in a closer personal bubble than yours. And we looked at if you don't continue to stand face to face, but you get kind of at a 45 degree angle, you can allow somebody to be right up by your side. And it doesn't feel as intrusive because it's more open right in front of you. So we began to explore, was it fair for the people who liked larger space to always be the ones that got to say, move back? And the people who wanted somebody closer never got to have their needs met. Part of my curriculum developed from things I thought of, but part of it developed from experimenting with the children that I worked with and seeing what helped them. And that's what you know, dance therapy is about, being with your clients where they are. And even though this wasn't therapy, that's my whole basis of working with individuals is where are they, what are their strengths, how am I going to use these strengths, how am I going to experiment and adapt? Um, another example was I came up with the four B's of self-control. That's probably what the best known part of my curriculum. I looked at an hour long video on dance in the New York public schools and hmm, right in that video was my four B's. (laughs) They didn't acknowledge me, but they had a whole big chart of them and teaching the kids. But I had a class where the school loved the four B's, first of all, because for the first time, teachers... Can you explain the four B's? Yes, I will.
0: Okay.
1: Um, for the first time, teachers, since telling their class to calm down and the kids wouldn't know how to calm down, in one minute they could get the calm. So the four Bs are breaks, where you kind of capture energy, you do an isometric push. Pushing gives you joint compression. I don't talk to the kids about that, but it does work on centering your energy. I tell them they're taking their wild energy or their angry energy and they're bringing it in and they're kind of squishing it. Breathe. So that's the first B is breaks. The second B is breathing. We do three calm abdominal breaths. The third B is brains. We do self-talk. And I have the kids rest their hands on top of their head because there are pressure points around the top of the head. And I don't have them push. I just have them rest their hands here. But just resting your hands on your head is calming. In fact, I forget the name of the author who studied movement things around the, the world but he found that in almost every culture, when people are getting upset, there'll be people who will put their hands here or here. And it's almost like holding the cork in, you know, not falling apart. Mm-hmm. So they put their hands here. They take a deep breath in. They close their eyes. And as they breathe out, they tell themselves, I am calm.
0: And just we do just a- to clarify, your hands are at the top of your head or behind?
1: My fingers are intertwined. My hands are resting on top of my head. I do the top of my head. But if kids have hair braids up there and that doesn't isn't comfortable, they can put their hands behind their head. Mm -hmm. And when I started the curriculum, I said I can calm down. That was what we said. That's still an okay message. But the message of I am calm is even more powerful. And then the fourth B is body. And for body, I just have the children put their hands on their chest. I have my hands crossed here. They can hug themselves if they want. At first, it was. Kind of, you're putting your hands here, and you can feel your heart. But I realized quickly that that was not a good cue for the kids. Some of them would say, "Well, my heart's beating fast. I can't feel my heart. I can't feel my heart beating." What? And, and they just get off on that. So I don't talk about that. I just say, "This is your body. You're coming. You know, you've you've told yourself you're getting calm. Now you're feeling your body calm and quiet." So those are the four Bs: breaks, breathing, brains, body. Takes about one minute to do it correctly. And if you do it on a neurophysiological level, you do calm down. I taught relaxation at the university for 30 years, so I I had the physiology of the relaxation and stress response down.
0: Is that part of the self-regulation
1: That's part of the Mm
0: self-regulation
1: unit. I developed that, I guess, the second year I started the curriculum, and I, I saw one class at the end of the year for four weeks only. And I said to the teacher, tell me what's your prime skill you want me to work on with the kids. And she said, getting them to calm down. (laughs) So I kind of developed from that class. But anyway, so in this school, um, the following year after I developed it, kids would come to me, Rena, you wouldn't believe it. We're sitting in the cafeteria and everybody's noisy, and they told us to do the four Bs, and it got so quiet you could hear a pin drop. (laughs) In Madison, in Wisconsin, we have tornado drills where all the kids come out into the hallway and they put their hands over their head and put their head down. And like in a fire alarm, you have the sirens going, but you leave the building. In the fire drill, you're sitting there and the, the sirens are going off inside the building. Um, these were young kids and lots of them would cry because they didn't like the noise. So they had a, a tornado drill and... This one class, nobody cried. And the other teachers are looking, going, what did, what happened? She, the teacher said, so I just had my kids do the four Bs. So the whole school wanted to learn the four Bs. It became part of the school culture. But I had a class one year where the teacher said, you know, I get my kids to do the four Bs. And they calm down. But the minute, say, we're now going to walk down the hall, I turn the corner. They're not calm anymore. They don't stay calm. This was one year where I had three second grade classrooms that were the teachers were going home crying every day. One classroom had a child with Tourette syndrome, a child with manic depression, a child with depression who was suicidal, a child, this was all in one classroom, just like children with really significant mental health issues. Another class with so many kids with ADHD, they were just jumping all over the room. Mm -hmm. So these teachers, they really needed the curriculum. That was the first time I worked with some classes for a whole year. The idea is what I'm trying to incorporate is that this is a living, breathing curriculum. So we're always developing new things. And I use my own body intelligence and I use the children experimenting. But I had a class. It was a kindergarten class. Every time I came into this one class, there would be kids griping about something. I would ask them about it. And it might be three days that happened three days ago. But they were still, you know, being upset. I said, you guys need to let, learn how to let go of your feelings. You know, you dealt with this already. You already talked to the person. It's time to let it go. So I came up with a new technique just for them called squish it, squish it, and blow it away. <laughs> so I said, you take this anger. You know, you've already talked to the person. Your teacher's already helped you. So you're going to take it, and you're going to squish it and squish it. So, again, you'll notice that push here. But three squishes, now it's really small, and you're going to blow it away, you're going to let your hands go into lightness. Well, this worked with this class. And since then, I've tried it with two other kindergarten classes that were having some anger issues. And it's really concrete. The kids can really relate to it.
0: So it's kind of like a tension release I mean, same concept of bringing your hands together and squishing the thing that is bothering you and using strength and force with that and then blowing it away with the breath. Moving into lightness. And then moving into lightness by maybe raising your hands lightly. As they
1: blow it away, their hands go out too. So they blow it and they let it go and they send it out.
0: Um, How effective do you think that is? Do they have to do that over and over again? Is it a repeated... Exercise each day.
1: Most of the kids who have told me that it's been successful do it once. They do the three squishes and they blow it away. And if they're together enough to do that, that works. But what I do is now is I offer kids maybe 10 different ways to calm down. And I have them experiment with each one of them and find three that work the best for them. And then I teach several different anger management techniques. So the sixth B is back away from anger when you're really angry, the amygdala is taking over. You're not thinking. The amygdala blocks information going to the prefrontal cortex. So you can't think. You only act. If you take a step backwards, I don't know why, and I can no longer find the research that supports this, but there was initially. It allows information to go to the prefrontal cortex and you can think again. So now you can might still be mad, but you can think about what you're going to do. So back away from anger is you take a step backwards, you put your hands on your belly and you feel your belly getting soft. You can't be angry and have a relaxed belly because as soon as you're mad, your your abdominal muscles tighten. So if you can make your abdominal muscles soft, you're now calm enough to deal with whatever was bothering you. There are a lot of kids that love that technique. There are other kids who they can't even think about doing something like that when they're mad. I have a form Called when I feel wiggly and jiggly I can and then on the form there's just for being excited for being anxious frustrated and mad and then I have them see maybe it's going to be all the same thing but maybe it's going to be different things for different situations and then instead of trying to memorize all these techniques or only having one thing and saying this is the one thing that's going to work for everybody I have the kids find what works best for their body, for their personality. And then they fill that out either with pictures or words, depending on what grade level they're in. Sometimes in kindergarten, what happens is the class as a whole will decide what works the best. And then they put it up in a big chart because they're not ready to do individual things. So I feel like it's essential to incorporate the body because the body is either out of control and you're being aggressive to somebody Or it's out of control because you're being hurt and you're frozen and you can't do anything to protect yourself or you're observing it.
0: So how do you help these children in all these different roles regain control over their bodies?
1: So one thing I work on a lot is when something is happening, of course, we know the fight, flight, freeze. So somebody's doing something to you. If you freeze, you can't think of what to do. So how do you get out of that? So we practice, how do you get out of that frozen state? Recognizing when you're in it, using a a calming technique or using, well, any of those calming techniques, sometimes just putting your hand on your body. I mean, when you're angry, your body is all aroused. How do you get it calm? And how do you recognize when you're getting mad before you get out of control? Now, that works for some people like... For me, usually, generally, if I'm getting annoyed, I have several stages. I can feel tension building in my body. And any one of those points, the earlier the better, I could decide to do some kind of an intervention for myself. But kids who have significant anger issues, who are the ones that do the most uh, bullying and fighting in school, they might look calm and then they're just triggered. But really, stuff has been building for them. So part of it is to help them become more aware of the arousal system in their body and even to periodically through the day take some breaks. So one thing, I used to do this with my relaxation class, but even little kids can understand this. I'll take my water bottle or I have a tea thermos. I take tea with me everywhere and I'll hold it out and I'll say, how heavy do you think this is? And of course, there's no (laughs) true answer that they're not going to give pounds. And I'll say, you know, if I hold this out with my arm straight for a moment, that's not very heavy. But if I hold it out there for an hour, my arm's going to feel like it's going to break off. And then you can all relate to that. And I'll say, well, that's like our intense feelings. To, To be angry for a moment isn't a big deal. But if we hold on to that and we stay stressed, if our, you know, and I actually teach even kindergartners the difference between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And we do an activity with the stretch cloth where we make it go really wild and we're all wild in it and that's the amygdala taking over. And then we we make it go calm and and so I'll have somebody call out which is which and we'll switch back and forth so they really get the term down. So we talk about also just because you're stressed doesn't mean the amygdala has taken over. But if you don't catch when you're getting stressed, if you keep that arm out, you're not going to become aware of it until your arm's ready to break off, till the amygdala is ready to take over. So perhaps... Through the day, you need to do some things that help you get back to a point of homeostasis. So even, you know, for me as an adult, say I'm stressed. I'm Say I'm going to have a stressed day. I'm periodically through the day, it's going to help me to stop whatever I'm doing, close my eyes, take some breaths, give myself some positive messages, and that's going to bring my body back to a point of homeostasis. So now I'm ready to pick up the stress and go on again. Whereas if I didn't let it go, by the end of the day, I'm going to have a migraine, I'm going to snap at somebody, whatever, something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I help kids learn to modulate themselves through the day with the idea that maybe you do have that exam and you're worried about the test, but if you stay worried all day long, what's going to happen?
0: Do you provide specific interventions that allow them to sense their bodies more, like when tension is rising? Yes.
1: So I've done a couple of different specific interventions for helping children feel when tension is rising and also feel what it feels like to stop themselves. So before I do the relaxation ones, I'll start with having kids run across a room full tilt and have to stop short on a line. And that's like putting on the brakes with their whole body. And there are numerous ways to do that successfully. You can bend your knees you can push with your feet. You can twist as you, as your toes hit that line. Some kids even will do a jump, but every intervention requires adding downflow. Every intervention adds putting tension in your body. If you're running full tilt, you can't stop yourself without pulling back in some way. So I get the kids to understand that if they're in the middle of an impulse, stopping themselves is going to require pulling back. So that's one specific intervention. And I'll have half the class watch, and we'll look at all the different ways, and I'll have them try it three, four, five, ten times even for some kids so that they can really feel in their body how do they stop themselves. Then I do go and stop activities with the drum, and we move around the room in different ways, and then I'll have them freeze, and I'll have them melt to a certain count. And we'll look at what does it take to melt, what does it feel like melting versus holding your position. So we'll do a difference of holding your position so firmly that I can come and push against you and you don't move. You're like stone. And then melting, and what does it feel like when you let go of the tension and you begin to melt? And then I'll come and I'll pick up a child's arm if they give me permission or just wiggle it on the floor and see if if they've let go of their tension. Some of the kids can do it better than my university students. <laughs>
0: So that's Um, for them to understand and feel in their bodies what it feels like to still be tense versus feeling like letting go of that tension?
1: Yes. When I first started doing the curriculum, I would do something like have the kids make fists with their hands and I'll ask them, is this tight or is this loose? And just getting them to understand gripping is tension. And what is it like to release the tension and not just to open your fingers, but literally to let your hands drop. And what's the difference in that feeling? And then how does that feel in your whole body? I was Judith Kestenberg's first paid employee back in the 70s. And I did her training for her movement profile. And one of the things we would do would be to match, like somebody would show tension in one part of the body and we would match that tension with our hands before we started doing tension flow lines. So I do that with some classrooms of kids where, I'll have the leader will do tension with their face and the follower, the mirror will will match that tension with their hands and will add a different body part. So we'll look at, you know, what does tension look like in the body? What does tension feel like in the body, in the face? What does it feel like when your face is tight versus when it's relaxed? Can you let your jaw drop down? There are a lot of adults who can't. They're so used to having their jaw tight.
0: thinking about that as you're saying that right now, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I might have a class for eight weeks, and all I do with them is self-regulation and focus. I might not get to interventions for bullying.
0: So what kind of interventions do you do for focusing?
1: Um, I do an activity with the kids. I don't know if you know what an ooze tube is, but it's a cylinder with... Um, like the kind of stuff they used to use in the lava lamps, kind mm-hmm. mm-hmm. of glue that would go through a hole in the middle and it goes really slowly. So you can watch that. Or I make calm bottles with, um, hot water, clear gel, tacky glue, and extra fine glitter. And I'll show them that when they shake the bottle and the glitters are then moving in all different directions. And that's what your brain feels like when you're stressed out or you're angry. Um, And I ask the kids if they can relate to feeling like just things are moving all over and pretty much everybody can. By the way, when I teach my classes, the teachers and the aides participate. So they get their own embodied experience and they have the vocabulary to then follow up with the kids. So the teachers also can really relate to feeling like everything's exploding all around them. Then as we watch the glitter, it begins to move all in one direction, which is down. And we use that to introduce the concept of the amygdala in the prefrontal cortex. But anyway, I use an ooze tuber bottle and I put it in the middle of a circle and we sit and we feel our bottom on the ground. So one thing is I want them to feel the connection to the floor. Um, I have them feel their breath going in and out and then we try and see if, can we sit quietly for one minute and just watch the glitter or watch the ooze going down? I'm asking them to do three things. Feel their bottom on the floor, become aware of their breath and stay focused on the ooze or the glitter. And I tell them that's challenging. There are adults who can't do three things at the same time, but we practice it. And what is it like? And then we we might gradually increase the amount of time that they focus. I had a second grade class that got up to seven to 10 minutes that they could do that and be comfortable doing it. Mm. Then once the class has the idea of doing it for a minute, though, I pick two or three kids who are now going to move on the outside of the circle, move around, and say some funny things, do funny things, sing a song, dance. And the kids who are still seated are trying to ignore them. So they're resisting the temptation to laugh. They're resisting the temptation to get distracted. And that's part of how I introduced the concept of self-control. And I said, if you laughed, if you got caught once in a while, I'm not interested in that. I want to know what worked for you when you were able to stay focused, when you were able to resist, what helped you. So immediate things will be keeping their eyes on the ooze or the calm bottle. The other, they'll tell themselves to do it. One thing that's hard that's also not taught in other curriculums, because one of the best-known curriculums around is Second Step. So they teach, you know, your body is still, your hands are quiet, your eyes are on the person that's talking. But they don't talk about how do you block out sound. And it's very difficult to, to learn to block those things out. Just like I address space, I do address sound. So I will have kids imagine that they have, like, headphones on or imagine that there's a waterfall. I tell them, pick the image that works the best for you. But you decide that those sounds are not going to come into your head. The only sounds that will come in will be danger sounds. So I tell the kids when I was writing the book about the curriculum, I had four kids at home. And I'd be working and they'd be playing, and I was able to just concentrate on my work until the sound – it, there was a certain tension level or volume in the sound. I knew I had to stop working and go and make an intervention or there'd be a fight. Mm-hmm. But I told the kids, you know, I could keep whatever I did with my ears working as until it reached a certain pitch. And that was my own thing. And I tell them, you know, I'm telling you to focus. I'm telling you to ignore distractions. If a fire drill happened, would you continue to ignore the distraction of the fire drill? or would you get up and go out of the building? And they laugh and they say, get up and go out the building I said of course because that signals danger in the same way if somebody if you were sitting in your classroom and you were supposed to be focusing on your work and somebody picked something up and was about to throw it at you would you sit there and do your work or should you move older kids know this already but young kids don't one of the first years I was teaching my curriculum my youngest child was in kindergarten and it turned out every day when she was going to get off the school bus, Um, this other boy who was in her class, also a kindergartner, but a little bigger, um, wouldn't let her get off unless she kissed him. She tried thinking of things to do, like um, waiting till he was on the bus and sitting away from him, but he would move. Um, She tried some things in her own mind, but nothing worked. So when I found out about this, I asked her, well, why didn't you get up and move when he moved next to you? Well, that would be breaking the rules. And she was a, quote, good little girl, and good little girls don't break the rules. So it was interesting. I started asking kindergartners, you walk into your classroom after recess, and you see that your teacher is unconscious on the floor. There's no running in the hallway. That's the rule. Do you walk to the office to get help, or do you run? And there are kids in every kindergarten class who say, walk.
0: Huh.
1: And we talk about no. No. This is an emergency. In an emergency or something dangerous, you're allowed to break the rules. Uh, Once I had a smart kid who said, I'll pick up the phone and call the office. (laughs) Because the class had phones. (laughs) But I introduced the concept that breaking the rules is okay. So when somebody's getting bullied, for example, one of the techniques I teach the kids is to be assertive. So when you're assertive, you're going to not just with your voice, but how you look with your body when you're assertive, to look strong, to look like you're not scared, even if you are scared. For some kids, being assertive is very, very difficult. So we do all kinds of other things as well. So one that the kids like a lot is to go, oh, my gosh, I'm late. I actually had a fourth grader who was walking home from school, and three middle school boys was were following her, uh, calling her names, throwing sticks and leaves at her, and she was getting really upset and she stopped and she was starting to cry and they kind of surrounded her. And she remembered, she only had one or two classes with me because I went I went to her class because the class I was working with was on a field trip a couple of times. But she remembered the idea of doing an intervention that would surprise somebody. So she went from almost crying to going, oh my gosh, it's Tuesday, piano lesson, my mom's gonna kill me and she just walked <laughs> off really fast. And the boys just stood there like, huh? Because when you do something that's surprising, the emotion of surprise creates a moment of suspended animation. And that suspended animation allows emotions to change. So if you surprise somebody who's trying to bully you or trying to attack you, you have the opportunity to make this interaction become different. So I'll tell kids, Like, one thing they can do is to say, oh, my gosh, the teacher needs me. I forgot. I need to go in and walk away from the person that's bullying them. I'll say, now, maybe the teacher doesn't need you. You're making that up. Is it, you know, you're making a lie there. Is that okay to make up a story to get away from something that's dangerous? So I teach them that, yes, it is. I use an example. Uh, My two daughters were down the block at a park one evening. It was dusk, summer. And three drunk men came out onto the field, and my older daughter was an early teen, and she was very pretty, and these guys were touching her. Mm -hmm. And um, she was really scared, but she had her younger sister to protect, too, and she saw a couple walking down the block. She grabbed her sister's hand and said, oh, Noel, there's mom and dad. We've got to go home with them, and walked off the playground and started walking down the street with this couple that they didn't know. So, I use that example to ask the kids, you know, and I say, when my daughter daughters got home, they told me what happened. So the story was to get away from the danger. Then they came and found a grown-up to tell the truth to. He said, "Was that okay to do? You know Yes, it is. And so we we look at different examples of that. Hmm. So I have about I don't know ten or twelve different approaches that kids can take. One of them is just, thanks for sharing." And then walking away. So no matter what a kid says to you, you can just go, thanks for sharing. You don't have to say you agree with them.
0: If they're getting bullied.
1: Right. If they're getting bullied verbally. Another is to just give them a compliment, give the person that's being mean to you a compliment. Oh, I love your hair. I love that shirt. You know, the pattern on it is great. Where did you get that? I wish I had it. When we practice saying at least three lines and the difference between saying stop with your eyebrows kind of in a straight line and your voice deep, using that deep voice in a staccato ending to the P at the end, which makes it assertive versus, oh, I love, you know, so, oh, my eyebrows are up. My eyes are big, like surprise, like, oh, I just love that. My voice is higher pitched as opposed to the lower one. So we look at the difference and how that feels. Um, So we practice a whole bunch. And again, I ask the kids to come up with a three. They feel like they can do the best. That work the best for them so my younger daughter just like my husband they're really good at taking words and changing them around making jokes puns um, I'm not good at that my younger daughter when was her first grade class that I first started the curriculum with she was her teacher was one of the three class teachers that agreed to be my guinea pigs and so somebody was teasing my daughter out in the playground, three boys. They came up to her, and they called her an a-hole. She didn't know what that was, but she knew they weren't being nice to her. They're standing over top of her, and I'm very small. My daughter's very small. She said, thanks, I do get A's on most of my tests. <laughs> they said, we're calling you an a-hole. <laughs> Yep, I'm pretty smart. I get ease on almost everything. We're not talking about your desk. We're calling you an A. Yep, thanks a lot. I'm pretty smart. And then she walked away. Um, I would never be able to do that. I just wouldn't think, I wouldn't be able to think like that. And so I give that kind of as an example to the kids. First of all, I make them promise not to repeat the word I tell them. It's like a swear word and they have to promise. But I can't show them the technique without using that word. I said, but that wouldn't be something I would do. I'm much more likely to be one assertive or, or complimentary or friendly. So I, I have the kids experiment with them. Go, I say go home. You know, with siblings are the worst. I say uh, lots of times a stop isn't going to work with a sibling. You have to find something else. And I have them practice different ones and then come up with the three they feel work the most with their personality. And I have them remember those three Because the first time I did it with my daughter's class, you know, I had this whole list of these things and the kids would come up to me and say, well, Reena, I practiced these in class. I knew them. But when somebody came up to me, I couldn't come. I couldn't remember any of them. So I felt like coming up with three and drawing pictures of them or writing them down is more likely that they're going to remember something than trying to list to remember a list of 15. It gets tricky when you're teaching bully techniques and the bully is in the classroom Hearing all the techniques. So, I had this class. Usually, I won't have the kids role play being the bully. I figure they don't need to practice being mean to each other. But in this particular class, I had them in groups of three. One child was going to pretend to be the bully, one child was going to pretend to be the target, and the other was going to be a bystander and help. They were going to wait and see if the bully could handle it, but then they were going to come in and help if they needed. So, this one group of kids came to me and they said, we've tried everything we can think. And the bullies were not supposed to stop unless they felt like the intervention did something to them. This one kid actually would bother other kids out in the playground. He would scream in their ears and he wouldn't stop. So the kids told me they had tried everything they could think of and this kid just wasn't reacting. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try. And I got on my knees Even though I was almost as tall as he was, I wanted to be shorter, which meant I couldn't do one requiring me to get away because I wasn't going to get away on my knees. But I tried several things, distracting him, giving him a compliment. And like the kid said, nothing worked. So I figured I had to come up with something he didn't know. I said, oh, would you like some candy? He went, yeah. I said, come with me. It's in the principal's office. And he just broke out laughing. He said, that got me. Um, and I said, you know, some of the time you might have to try several different techniques before you find something that's going to work and you have to be willing to persevere. But it doesn't mean don't go to a grown up to get some help even with some of those ideas. I had a child who was getting bullied on school bus and he tried saying stop. He, he was coming and talking to me each week. So I, I knew about it. But he wanted to handle it himself. He didn't want to go to the principal he didn't want to involve his parent. He wanted to see if he could find something that would get this kid. So he tried two or three things. It was finally um, he found something this kid was interested in that he was interested in soccer, and he got him talking about soccer. And the kid became, I believe, became friendly. And that that was the end of it. But he tried three different things first that didn't work, and he had to be willing, you know. At any of those times, he could have gone to the bus driver, he could have gone to his teacher, he knew I knew about it, you know, so he was getting support, which I talked to the kids about the importance of that. But how powerful it was, this was a shy kid, that he wanted to find a way to handle it, and he stuck with it, that perseverance.
0: So some schools have begun to incorporate meditation as a form of violence prevention, How do you feel about the incorporation of still meditation versus more active movement intervention that you're describing?
1: So I feel like mindfulness works perfectly in my curriculum. Mindfulness is about being still, but you can be mindful while you're moving as well. It's not about not moving. Sometimes it is with meditation, but you can also have moving meditation. But mindfulness is being able to be just where you are right now. And I have the kids practice. Again, we look at the ooze tube. We might increase 10, 15 seconds a week, seeing if we can increase the amount of time. And I'll I'll say, you know, you might be looking at the ooze tube, and then your mind starts to think about something else. And I'll bring up in meditation, it's like the monkey on your shoulder kind of talking to you. And, and you can just say, oh, hi thoughts, you know, high feelings. I recognize you there. I'm going to go back to focusing now. It's okay to recognize them. You don't have to fight the fact that these thoughts come up. That's normal. Um, But you want to be aware that they come up, not just not know that your brain is going off on another tangent. And then we look at um, how does that work in a classroom. But I'm going to backtrack because I just feel like my curriculum meshes perfectly with meditation and mindfulness. But I want to go to empathy because I feel like that's such a crucial part of the curriculum. So I start introducing empathy with mirroring. And when I do mirroring, I'll start with kids in pairs and one person's leader, one person's following. And then they'll switch. And I'll start only with fingers and hands. Then I'll tell them they can. they're seated facing each other. Then they can add the rest of their body, but they're still seated. Then if they want to, they can stand up. And then I offer them scarves. So that's always there's a clear leader. But then I do another kind of mirroring where we start out where they lead back. You know, one person leads and the other person leads. And then when they stand up, there is no set leader. And can they allow the mirroring to just kind of merge from the both of them? So any time one person might change and are there moments when you don't know who started the movement? You're just so connected to the other person that you move in the same way at the same time. Then I might have them do it in groups of four and no set lead, you know, first with a set leader, but then with no set leader. And I we talk about how being able to be so connected to somebody and focusing on them allows them to feel seen and heard. So we play with that in different ways. Instead of mirroring, we try matching. Just like our dance therapists attune attuned with a client, it doesn't mean you're going to mirror with your client. You may pick up on a quality of the client. So I'll have a class where, or I'll, I'll have a small group, and one person will move, and the other kids will try and pick up something of what they're doing. It could be the rhythm of it. It could be the intensity of it. It could be the direction of it. And they try and match that without mirroring. That's really hard for kindergartners to get. But first grade and up, They can do that. I do all kinds of movement that require paying attention to each other. We might start uh, different kinds of waves and then we do the same way. Everybody does that wave or one person starts moving in a classroom. And then once the whole class is moving together, somebody can change the movement and then the whole class has to change. And maybe two or three people initiate a change at the same time and whoever has the most people going everybody has to agree to go along with them when they've gotten good at becoming sensitive to each other's movement even doing an exercise of coming in the room and everybody moves around the room in the energy level they feel at that moment then they look around the room and say are there other people in my energy level and they join them so there could be four groups or five groups depending on the different energy levels Then I ask them to look at the group that's the closest to them in energy and can they find a way to find an energy that they can be together. And eventually we work to finding the same energy. So after we do a lot of movement exercises where we try on different people's movements, we feel what it's like, we talk about what that's like, we match the different tension levels in a tune. Then we sit down and we have concrete discussions about what empathy is, what it might look like. What I teach the children is feeling what you feel isn't enough. If I'm going to be empathetic and walk away, it's not doing any good. To, to really be empathetic, you want to understand how somebody's feeling and you want to figure out what you can do to help them if they need help. And I said sometimes that gets really tricky. So my younger daughter was academically really gifted. So I remember her being on the computer one afternoon doing some – problem and I knew how to do it and she was struggling with it she did not want my help she wanted to work it out and so I tell the kids for me to show empathy was to not do anything was to back away and let her do that as opposed to my impulse which was to step in and help her to be able to do it and do it easier and do it better that wasn't being empathetic being empathetic was to understand her drive to to figure it out on her own so we look at we come up with lists of different ways of being empathetic, of respecting when somebody doesn't want to talk about something or somebody might need space. And we look at sometimes just sitting there or saying, I'm here when you need me and moving away and giving them, you know, so we look at all different ways. And the kids come up with a pretty big list of um, ways that they can be empathetic to other people.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can see how the spatial awareness ties into that with, Absolutely. with uh, understanding how much space someone needs. Maybe when you would need someone to be close to you, this other person might need more space and need someone to be further away from them.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. I When I start the curriculum, I generally, with younger children, I start with spatial awareness and self-regulation mm-hmm. because if I don't have that in a class, I can't create a, a class of safety. With older kids, I may start with the bullying interventions and then go into use those to go into the spatial awareness and self-regulation cuz i need to have a hook to make them interested enough
0: right and um so you have a, a group of kids who are very very difficult and can't necessarily engage in any of those principles yet you will just focus on helping them focus for as long as they need it
1: yes well kids who have trouble doing most things enjoy moving so getting them moving. The stretch cloth also becomes a big hit with almost everybody. So I might take that out. And instead of getting into it, where I have to have a trusting environment that somebody's going to get knocked over, we might start sitting and holding in our hands and rocking back and forth and using strength. And how do we stay grounded, not get pulled over, pulling in a a seated position or doing waves with the cloth and each person gets to pick a, a tempo and everybody has to follow it. That hooks a lot of people in that kids love trying to distract each other. And I will only allow you to become a distractor if you show me that you're working on focusing. So that becomes a, a hook.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I find way, you know, movement is engaging. And as a dance therapist, I have a wide repertoire of things to draw from. Um, I do pushing. You would think that pushing would be the opposite thing you would want to do in a bullying prevention curriculum but i have kids all of half the class being aligned facing each other. And in the middle of them is a river. And they put their hands up and they start by pushing gently against each other harder, harder till they're pushing as hard as they can, but not harder than the other person. And then they take a breath and they breathe and bring their arms up together and around as they breathe, like as a recuperation. And then they go back to pushing again. So we're looking at what does it feel like to match another person using strength, Both of you feeling strength. So for the person who's been abused or is getting bullied, to feel like they're strong in this exercise is powerful. Then I'll do another exercise where one person pushes a little bit harder than the other person, and they move them across the room backwards. One of the first times I did this exercise, the class paired off, and there was just a boy and a girl left, and this boy did not want to be paired with the girl. He just thought, you know, he wasn't going to be able to push. And when they went to pushing, she was really strong. And he just started laughing because he realized he was going to have to use every ounce of his strength to move her across the room. <laughs> so when we do that, we also do it both ways. And you have to allow the person to move you. So even if the, if you're stronger than they are, you still have to allow them to push you. And part of that is for person that's doing bullying they have to allow themselves to be weaker and feel what does it feel like to be pushed by another person. And for the person that's being bullied, they have to be able to push the other person across the room and so it connects them to their core of strength. So you would think that bullying, that pushing would be the opposite of what you would want in a, in a violence prevention curriculum, but you don't want to take out strength and joy in feeling strong and powerful because you're doing violence prevention. You want to find what are safe ways to be strong? And that's one of the things that I do with, with bullies is helping them find safe ways to be powerful instead of hurtful ways. And we actually talk about that, that bullying is a way of using your strength to hurt somebody else. What are, what are ways we can be powerful that, you know, when we have, we have fun moving.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: You asked about how I involve families in this.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask um, for any uh, parents listening if there are any techniques that parents can incorporate at home with children who are in any of those roles at home or at school, whether they're bullying or being bullied or witnessing bullying.
1: So when I do this curriculum, I have a pictorial handout for pretty much every skill. And once a month, I'll send a letter home going over what we've learned in the class and suggestions for parents. And then on the other side is pictorial handout. You know, I, I had this interesting class this last year, kindergartners, who I couldn't teach them. They were just so all over the place. They were so angry. They were just, wouldn't listen to anything. And when, when I get a group like that, I've had other classes like this. I kind of scrapped the structure of my curriculum and go with where they are. So one day I took out, I had a bag of stuffed animals, and I gave each kid an animal, and I asked them to show me to have their animal practice the techniques.
0: <laughs>
1: so the animals, you know, did the four B's or they did the step back. And then how do we have your animal feel good? And they rocked their animals. And for the next 10 weeks, I helped them through the animals. And the teacher came to me and said, they're coming up to me saying, Miss Knee, I stepped back when I was angry and didn't made my belly softer. Miss Knee, I did and that they were actually starting to use the techniques on their own in the classroom because I went with what they needed, and they needed what the animals did was to provide them with that sense of nurturance that they needed for themselves to self-settle. So just saying, okay, forget the structure. I'm going to go where they are. We made stories about the animals needing help and being lost, and We just I treated it like a therapy group, basically, and went with where they were and kept funneling in the skills. So that became something maybe I would write home to those parents and say, when your child is having a hard time, having something to hold and rock can help them get calm. So I'll send home a list of the different interventions, and we'll talk about ways to talk to your child about these interventions. So the concept of acting as if is an important concept that I teach the kids and I talk to the parents to use with their children. So you have to act as if you are not scared, even if you are scared. To do almost any of these interventions, whether it be assertive or whether it be doing something that's surprising or whether it's just saying thanks and walking away, you have to act like you are not scared. So we've already introduced the concept of resisting when we looked at focusing and resisting getting distracted. So anyway, the parent letters are really helpful. And in the curriculum, there's sample letters for each unit that I teach. Mm -hmm. But when I'm working in the schools, I make up a letter to go with whatever we've done. So if we make up something new, and kids will come up with new interventions to use for bullying. So they might come up with what three things they're gonna do. All these things that I teach are important for adults too, though. Yeah. I've done now some family classes and parents, one parent who had an anxiety disorder said, I don't have to take medication very often. Now I I use the four B's and it really helps me. Other parents have said how helpful it was for them to see the concept of resisting and self-control and how it was taught and then to come up together with their kids, each of them having a goal they were going to work on at home, you know, We need self-control some of the time. We need to be able to resist temptation. We need to be able to handle bullies in the workplace. Um,
0: And I'm even thinking on a larger picture right now, how there's so much bullying pronounced just in our current social political climate and how our, I mean, now more than ever, um, with the help of social media, all of our differences are really highlighted and there's more bullying going on. And so Yeah, I wanted to get your perspective on what would you say or what would you advise to adults who are on all sides of this?
1: Well, I'm going to give you, I'll go to that, but I'm going to tell you one thing I did in a class. It was a Spanish immersion class, fourth graders, and there was a child in the class who wasn't yet diagnosed with autism, but, you know, he was going to end up being diagnosed, and the kids in the class took pleasure in getting into his space, in touching him, in moving his belongings. And I had done belief prevention interventions, but they weren't stopping. This was before the election, but it was during the the primaries. So I asked the kids, what do you guys know about, you know, they're fourth graders. They're 10 years old. And I said, what do you know about politics? They looked at me. They didn't know what that meant. I said, okay, um, any of you know who Trump is? And remember, this is a Spanish immersion class. Half of these kids are from Mexico. He said, yes, we know who Trump is. He thinks everybody from Mexico are murderers and rapists. I said, oh, what does that make you feel when he says those things? We hate it. We're not rapists and murderers. I said, of course you're not. Of course you're not. When he says those things, he's calling names and he's being a bully. Do you like being bullied? No. I said, okay. Do you want to be like Trump. No, I said, cut kind out of doing what you're doing to this kid. And they stopped. <laughs> and then I went home and I thought, oh, shit, am I going to get into trouble? But I didn't say what my political views were. I asked them what theirs were. Nice. I never I never heard anything. Um, I do activities to bring things up like an, I do an activity I used to call an alien activity. I won't use the word alien anymore because of Trump. Um, but half the class are people that live on it and are from another planet. And the other part of the class, we use the stretch cloth and it's our space and they're in stretch sacks, body socks, Kimberly dyes body socks. So they look different than us. We can't see their faces anymore. And then we are in a spaceship and we come to their planet. So we're the visitors and we have to figure out how are we going to get to know someone who doesn't have the same language as, as us, doesn't have the same gestures, might not have the same meaning. So we go to this mirroring and giving them space, not getting too close, watching them, trying to, to match what they're doing as a way to say, I accept you. And, and then we, we have discussions about what's that like and has anybody in class experienced prejudice where somebody's not accepting of them because of the way they look, the color of their skin, their religion. It's a way to bring that topic up. My, my comment to the kids that I work with is that we have to make kindness win. And that we have to find a way to not get sucked into the hate that's being put out there. If we do, what's our world going to be? And I'll ask the kids, you know, what do you think it'll be if, if hate wins? Mm. You know, what's it going to be like for everybody? And how difficult it is to keep your heart open to kindness when there are all these pressures And stuff being said, how do you how do you keep hold of that sense of kindness? And we we talk about that. We talk about that heart being open and and how we reach out to others. And so when we're dealing with a bully, for example, we're not going to bully back. How do we do that? You know, we talk about how when you you might handle a situation well, it doesn't mean you don't need to get some support to sustain your heart. Um, so you might be able to get away, you might turn it so that it's not a a terrible situation anymore, but it doesn't mean that you don't need to talk to somebody. It could be a friend or could be an adult, but to feel free, even if you've handled it to get that help for yourself so that you can continue to, to have that open heart.
0: Yeah. That's good advice. Reaching out for support and, Mm -hmm. you know, no matter what happens in the moment, no matter how, if you surprise them or respond with kindness, you know, the bullying will still affect you. And it's important to process that, get support.
1: I directly bring up cultural differences and how like in um, kids from Mexico there, they don't feel like you like them unless you're putting your arm on them. You're right there, right close to them. And in Wisconsin, you know, we're more of a standoffish kind of community and then what does that feel like and I'll ask the kids what's the difference between space at home and space at school what's the difference between the way you can talk about things at school and at home what's the way you can get comfort or support and how is it different but that you still need that support so how do you develop these avenues of getting it in different places so again that's a way of, of funneling out both bringing in that these differences make us richer how nice it is that Kids want to be touched and want to be close and want to be loved. And how do we maintain that while still maintaining the boundaries? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that sounds so relevant to us as adults about identifying and respecting each other's cultural differences and even just having an open conversation about it. Like, I like to hug people who I feel close to whether it's seeing them for the first time in a while or saying goodbye to them or just a special moment. That's how I really want to show love. But I also have to realize that not everyone is comfortable with that and it might not feel loving to them. So something like that is just a simple question. Can I hug you? You know, and if they say no and that upsets me, then that's a good question that you pose, you know, how do I reach out for support or where can I get the physical intimacy or affection that I'm craving? Maybe it, you know, happens with my mom when I see her, or maybe it's just a some sort of hobby that feels fulfilling enough in a certain way. So I think you bring up a lot of great points there about keeping an open heart and meeting kindness with kindness, meeting bullying and violence with kindness as much as we want to may want to retaliate you know how do we respond in our own individualized way that will work for us and then reach out for support in in whichever way will help us heal I think that's great advice for all of us and something we should keep in mind thank you so much thanks everyone for listening and don't forget to visit my website to find out how to win a free Elastablast. See you next time.